I'll be reading from Exodus 21, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. In the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his, his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can take your seats. My name is Darren. I'm one of the pastors here at Taproot. And I want to welcome you guys. If you're new, if you haven't been here before, I'd encourage you guys to fill out one of the Connect cards that's on the back of the seat in front of you. Um, and as Alex said, and as Kyle just read, the section we're in, this is just, that was just a snippet of a whole three-chapter section that we're going to be covering um, this week and next. We started last week with an introduction. Um, I spent the whole sermon trying to guide us through how we can best hear God's words, um, what our heart posture should be as we read those, to be able to see, one, as, as Alex mentioned, all scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired. There's something God wants to speak to us. And so the humility to hear what that is. And then secondly, Jesus teaches that all scripture points to him. And so where is Jesus in this text? Um, I don't know about you, I get in a lot of conversations. I'm a talkative guy. Um, I don't actually like the one-way conversation thing, <laughs> um, but, but I, I enjoy the privilege to, to grow in that. Uh, but in conversations, just socially, you guys have probably experienced this too, where you're getting in a conversation that gets very, very deep pretty quickly. It'll go on for a while, and it's in depth, it's involved, and then kind of the friend walks over and like, hey guys, what's going on here? <laughs> it's awkward for both the guy who walks up, for the girl who walks up, and the people in the conversation, because you're just like, well, I'd love to catch you up, but it might take a little while. That's a little bit like what we're going to be doing today. If you guys missed last week's sermon, there's this fancy way for me not to have to catch you up personally. You can listen online to the sermon, <laughs> but you may feel a little bit like that awkward friend that walks in and says, I'm not sure what's going on here. This is some, some rough stuff. And so go back, listen to that introduction if you haven't. Um, and the big idea last week is, is going to stay the big idea this week and next week. We're going to stay with this theme of God meets us where we are, to bring us where he is. Um, as his people, he meets us in the midst of our brokenness and our sin, in the midst of a culture's brokenness and a culture's backwardness in their sin, and he brings us through this, this big idea called sanctification. God bringing us into um, unison, into this harmony with the life of Jesus. So we're exuding his character, his virtues. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. And so the, the big theological word for that process through our lives as Christians is sanctification. And it's the idea of God um, has made us saved at the cross. That's, that's where he saved us. So we're made right with God at the cross. Last week I misspoke and said uh, 
sanctification is God making us right with him. But that's not the case. Sanctification is the process of becoming right like God. We are right with him, but God is molding us and making us more like himself. And so we're going to kind of stick to that same theme, looking at the law as we kind of zoom in to these verses, that God gives them a law for right where they are in order to kind of bring his people through their lives and then also through the centuries to become like him. And the way we're going to do that um, this week and next is look at themes. So rather than going kind of verse by verse through this, we're going to kind of take uh, lumps of certain verses through these three chapters, Exodus 21, 22, and 23, and then look at big themes to kind of weave our way through because Moses doesn't actually break it up into big themes. So we're going to do that so it's a little easier for us to digest. And so the the three themes for today, we're going to look at the idea of authority in the book of the covenant, in this section of the law. The, the authority that comes through parents, the authority that comes through government. And then we're going to look at slavery, which you heard in those first six verses. The institution of slavery that was still allowed to continue in Israel's early history. And then we're going to look at just the broader idea of injustice and inequality, if we have time. I'm, uh, <laughs> I recognize you guys might hear my voice. I'm getting over some sickness. So my mind might kind of drift off here, so just bear with me. We may get through two of those themes, but we'll pick up again next week and kind of finish them all out. So, um, and then, as I mentioned, because we're going to be going through so much kind of tricky text and navigating through there, um, this may seem a little more like a class than maybe a Sunday sermon. So put on your thinking caps, um, do some active listening, not passive listening, and try to track with me and the text this morning. So... Let's pray together, and we'll jump into it. Father, I'm always struck um, by how much you have to teach me through your word. Even just thinking of um, a couple months ago, first reading these sections and feeling very confused, feeling a bit lost, feeling like I had to, to wrestle with these texts. And, and yet, now as you've been revealing yourself through them, God, I'm just thankful that you do meet us where we are. I'm thankful that you didn't allow Israel to stay in the kind of bondage and oppression that they were in in Egypt, but you saved them, and that you do the same for us, that you don't leave us, but you pursue us. You get your hands dirty, and you shape us. So God, I pray you do that this morning, um, that you would meet us through this text that you would show us the goodness of your purpose. God, ultimately, I pray that you would make our hearts like yours, that we would be a kind of people that can see those that are unseen, see those that are marginalized and vulnerable, and enter in to try to, to bring justice into people's lives from you. And God, I pray that we would learn to have the kind of grace for others that you have for us. So, Spirit, work in our hearts, convict us, encourage us this morning. Amen. All right. So, as I said, the first theme we're going to hit is this idea of authority, looking at parental authority and governing authority, just kind of authority in general. And I think that should almost go without saying, because we're starting in a text that's the law. This This is the first time these people, who weren't just freed from the land of Egypt, to just wander nomadically. And yes, they did wander, but they, they had a God who gave them a purpose. 
They had a God who gave them um, his presence, but they also had a God who gave them his law and prescribed the way they were to live. And so as we look, we're going to start with verse 15 um, and then jump to verse 17. I think those verses are on the screen if you guys want to follow us, follow along there. We're going to look at how Israel went from being lost to being led. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Verse 17. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Jump ahead to verse 28. When the ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox... I think I'm on the wrong chapter. I wrote the wrong chapter on there. That should be chapter 22, verse 28. Sorry about that. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. So with each of these themes, we're going to kind of look at it from three viewpoints. We're going to look at the theme from where Israel came from. Where were they when God met them? What was the gruesome reality of their life without God, and then we're going to look at the glorious trajectory, like how God has brought them to the foot of this mountain, given them a law, and setting them on a new trajectory, and a new way of living, a new morality. And lastly, looking at Jesus, who is the ultimate glorious destiny for believers, that we are being made to become more like Christ. That's who God is bringing us towards. And so, starting off with the gruesome reality, a, a little um, study whether it's Wikipedia or Google, whatever, if you try to look at how were children viewed in like ancient Near Eastern cultures, you're going to have a hard time finding a lot of information. Which, to me, was frustrating at first as I was studying for this, because I wanted to see the culture around this. Like, what was the culture that God wrote this in? And yet, uh, the more I thought about it, the fact that there is very, very little seen um, or said about children in that culture says a whole lot. Children were, like the, the last generation's adages, they were to be seen and not heard. Children in that culture, and many uh, cultures around Israel, were actually sacrificed to their deities. They had child sacrifice. It was a pretty common occurrence. There was also um, infanticide. It was very common for kids in those cultures to not even receive a name until they were two or three because they might not actually live long enough to be recognized kind of as a full person. It was a gruesome reality, and there's not a lot of information. So when we have really hard texts that we're starting with, like um, a child who strikes his parent, and the word strike there is essentially a word in Hebrew that means a a merciless beating. Um, But someone who who strikes their parent in that way is to put to to death. child who reviles their parent, that, that curses them in a dis- publicly disparaging way is to be put to death. We don't have a whole lot of context for where they came from as far as what was the culture like around them. 
who we can look and say, that is, that is gruesome. And if we, if we recognize that this is connected to the Ten Commandments, um, you guys know one of the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and mother. And the add-on to that commandment is for it will mean lo- long life for you in the land. And I think looking at that can help us get this idea of why honoring and obedience and authority for children to parents was such a big deal for their culture. One, if there was that kind of, that kind of level of severe dishonor or disobedience, it would mean a very short physical life. Yet, secondly, when it talks about obeying your father and mother so you'll have long life in the land, Moses, or God through Moses was, was uh, keen in on that if the family disintegrated, if the bonds, the, the kind of healthy relationships in the family disintegrated to such a point where the parents and the children didn't have harmony in the way they were living, this was not a people that lived in stable homes. They were a traveling people. They had 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, and there's no way for that nation to continue if the breakdown of the family occurred. I think it's the same in our day. I think if we look at why does God still, as believers, though this is where they were at, and God does not call us to live in such a way with children, there's still a principle underneath that honor matters to God, that obedience matters to God, that the way we parent our children should not be just for their happiness and to get them to a place where they seem like productive, good adults with white picket fences and a dog and a boy and a girl and, you know, getting together for Christmas. There should be something bigger. There should be something deeper that we desire in how we parent our kids. And so why does honor and authority and respect matter so much for parents and children? I think it's because it's a reflection of God. Later on in Ephesians, we see that honor your father and Lord, or honor your father and mother, obey your father and mother in the Lord. There's an idea that we have a way of showing our children how to be obedient and how to honor God through human relationships. And it's the same way through government. I think that's why Moses says here to also obey and honor our rulers, those that are in governmental authority over us. I think it's the reason why God gives us leadership within the church. Um, Pastor Will had a, a saying that he said a few weeks ago that kind of stuck with me, that the law is written for us, but it's not written to us. So we live in a very different culture, but there's still something for us here. And I believe, as we, many of us in this room, are parents, but all of us are in some place of being over or under in an authority position, whether it's in your work environment we're all under authority in this country. Whatever it is, this idea that we all need to honor authority is important because there's no healthy authority that is not under authority. If you are in authority as a parent, if you're in authority as a boss, if you're in authority as some public official or leader, and yet not under authority, that is the definition of abuse. Godly authority comes as an expression of being under God's authority and trying to show something of who God is to those that God's put you over to care for, to tend to. So as we raise our children up, very common things like rather than consistency in discipline, 
rather than trying to um, discipline and, and shepherd our people towards Jesus and explain the gospel to them, if we're just trying to keep them out of our way, not blocking the TV, redirecting them because we don't want them to throw a fit, counting to three because we don't really require obedience, we just require it the third time. We teach that two times of disobedience is all right as long as you obey the third time. There's all these patterns that we have that are indicating that really, rather than us showing how God is our authority and how we're to honor him to our children, we're actually showing the opposite. We're showing that God is inconsistent, that he's instable, that he's not consistently there for us, that he's dishonorable. So as we look at the the gracious trajectory of God, we see from the very beginning of creation that God does not want us to be in that place of chaos, of instability. Like a child doesn't thrive in that, and no human thrives in that. So from the beginning, God brings order out of chaos, right? That's the very beginning of Genesis. God spoke order into chaos. And he does that all the way throughout. He's bringing his people into flourishing out of a desert into a land of milk and honey, into this promised land of flourishing. He brings them out of a place of extreme just authoritarianism to a place of healthy authority and healthy leadership out of Israel into the people, or out of Egypt into the people of Israel. So from the very beginning, God, who is called Lord, who is called Master, who is called Father, shows what a good father is. He shows what a good leader is. He shows all these pictures to his people, and we model those to our kids and to those that God has entrusted to us. But as God's gracious trajectory moves, we see that his desire is not to have all these levels of authority, ad nauseum. God wants us to be out of the way at a certain point. God doesn't want you to have the same kind of leadership of your kids when they're 30 as he wants you to have when they're 13. The purpose of raising a kid isn't to keep them in the place, but to raise them so that they're sufficient on their own. And it's the same way with God. God desires to take away all these different levels of hierarchy so people actually are directly under him that across the board, there's a leveling of the playing field, that God's heart is to be their one king and their one father. You see that begin, we're going to go through a lot of scripture today, so I think it's going to be up on the screen. And uh, 1 Samuel 8, verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And this is way after Moses' time, so I'm just taking us through the pages of scripture. And they said to him, you are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as the other nations have. But they, when they said to God, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. So Israel's heart was to model their kind of authority after the nations around them, not after their God. That's, that's what they turned into. As God was trying to take them from a place of stepping in as a father and raising them as a nation, 
They were meant to have this plurality of leadership, of judges, to be a people that didn't need to have a, kind of a one-way direction leadership from a king, but they could actually live as a kingdom of priests, Moses says. People that, as the end of uh, chapter 22, they're consecrated to him. They're people that can uh, enter God's holy place without having a representative. Like, that is meant to be God's plan, but because of the sin that happened, God gave them the king. God ended up giving them the representatives. And so, in Israel's history, though, when we see kings and priests and prophets and these leader um, kind of individuals, they're very rarely women. They're very, very rarely children. They're very rarely slaves or servants. And they're very rarely the poor. And so we see, continuing through Scripture, God's trajectory even more. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28, should also be on the screen here. It shall come about... It shall come to pass afterwards, this is Joel prophesying about the Holy Spirit coming, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days will I pour out my spirit. So was Israel, was it gross that Israel was stoning children, that there was a capital punishment on disobedience. I think, it, I think it was, and I think God would agree with that. And yet he met them where they were, and eventually brought them to a place where he elevated children to a very different level. When you think about Jesus and how he interacted with children, Jesus was the exact imprint of the image of God, that he was a representation of God's heart. And we see in Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 13, that when children were brought to him, that he might lay hands on them and pray... The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So moving from a culture where children were always seen and not heard, Jesus gives this very different model and says, You have to have faith like this to enter the kingdom of God. There's something that these children can teach you smug adults that think you have your lives together. You need to have some, some reckless abandon like these kids. You need to have this kind of faith that runs to me and is willing to be held by me. There's something that's changing as God's tra trajectory moves through scripture. And we see this glorious destiny of, of what God's heart is for children and for authority. Jesus always seems to bring a bit of a twist to what we'd expect. In Matthew 23... Verse 8, rather than kind of a message on how we need to be stronger leaders and lay down the law, God gives a very, very different message to his first disciples. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See, the kingdom of God is backwards from the way we think, from the way the kingdoms of the world operate. We've talked before that this is an upside-down kingdom. It's counterintuitive. Bottoms up, up is down, down is up. 
God comes in and says, no, you have to actually come and the least of you will be exalted. Those that serve will be the ones that are recognized. The kingdom looks different. Jesus, in his life, lived in a way that honored his father perfectly. All the way through. Always revering, always honoring, always obeying. All the way through his life. And yet, the reason the religious leaders killed Jesus is they believed that Jesus had dishonored and disrespected God the Father. Talking to Jesus, said, what you, a mere man, claim to be God, you're committing blasphemy. Jesus was killed for a charge of dishonoring the Father, and yet he, as a perfect child, obeyed the Father absolutely perfectly in a way none of us can, can ever obey our physical parents, let alone God the Father. As he died, as they killed him, he took the death that we all deserve. One of the reasons that the stoning of children, that the way um, they would interact with disobedience and the kind of um, fragrant disrespect was one of the reasons that's so hard for us to stomach and to look at is because it doesn't, it doesn't seem like there's equity there. It seems like there's a harsher punishment for the disrespectful child than there is for a disrespectful parent. It seems like there's an inequity. I don't believe that when we actually look at our own lives and our own disobedience to God, that we actually deserve anything but death. Every single one of us. God levels the playing field, not to say, you're actually all okay. I'm ignoring, I'm going to look away from all the disobedience, from all the dishonor, from all the rebellion against me, and just forget about it. Jesus is just. He took the just punishment for all our rebellion as rebellious kids that bite the hand that feeds us, that strike back when God's trying to embrace us. Jesus took that wrath and that punishment on the cross. So kind of closing this section out, when my wife and I discipline our kids, one thing I've started saying in recent years as I'm talking to them is, guys, I am not an authority in myself. I have no authority. Even though it's very common in the culture for people to say, obey me because I'm your mom, because I'm your dad, I think that's kind of a poor argument. The only reason they are to obey their parents is that there's something reflecting their obedience to God in that. And so taking away that divide, that hierarchy of I'm just more worthy of your obedience because I'm an older human being and saying, no, you're to obey me because God has told you to. And I'm to discipline you when you don't because God has told me to. It's about an honor and obedience of God. And thankfully, Jesus has both taken our failures onto the cross and, and paid for them. And he has also given us his spirit that allows us to be the kind of people that model authority and honor well. So next we got slavery to salvation. So I'm going to read through a couple lengthy sections here. Um, I'll read again starting in verse 1 through 11. So follow with me in chapter 21. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. In the seventh, he shall go out for free, for nothing. 
If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and the master shall bore his ear with an owl, and he shall be a slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. But if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If, she takes another, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these things for her, these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. And jump to verse 20 and 21. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Verse 26 and 27. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. The gruesome reality again. Anybody enjoy reading hard sections like that? We look back and there should be cringe moments because this is a culture where there was a practice that was far worse than even what God is allowing to continue here back in Egypt. And so the fact that this is steps up for the Israelite people, that should cause us to mourn for our culture that was so far from the heart of Jesus, that was so far from the equity and the justice of Jesus. For them, though it was steps up from their slavery in Egypt, if we were to look at the slavery in our own country, whereas here, the slavery is mainly based on economic disparities. With the situation where the men would sell themselves into slavery, it would be for a limited amount of time, and it would essentially be the destitute, the, the homeless of that situation and that culture would sell themselves into a place where they'd be provided for, have a home over their heads, and they would essentially work off the debt they had accrued to be able to get back on their feet, be sent out with property, with land, it was still gruesome. There were still parts of it that I believe are far from God's heart, but it was very, very different from our own modern slavery in the U.S. Their slavery was better. God brought them to a place of more equity, of more compassion and justice than they were in Egypt, but yet the American slavery was actually worse than it was in Israel. And we have to guard against importing our view of slavery because of our modern history books onto Israel. It wasn't that there wasn't things that were barbaric and that were hard to stomach and that God allowed, but it wasn't because God condoned or was happy about those continuing. It's because God was working, like the analogy I used last week, like a surgeon. He's going step by step, bit by bit, and throughout time, God planted the seeds of emancipation here for Israel. And throughout time, those seeds grew. And we see the culmination of that growth in Jesus. But we should look at this, and we should have this sorrow for a people 
that were entrenched in this, and God came in in his grace to bring them out. We see that for them, there was a safeguard for slaves, for those that were um, particularly in poverty, even with the women that were the daughters sold into slavery. This was the same kind of situation of poverty, where women would not, they would not have money to, to, to have the daughters marry a man because they didn't have the, the bride price payment. And so instead, they would go into a limited time frame of, of slavery to, to a master in order to essentially pay that bride price and then get married off to one of the sons of the master, which is still very different from our culture now and still not God's heart. But it was something that was actually a safeguard for them. It was kind of a safety net rather than death or starvation for families. God put these things or kept these things in place for his people until those seeds of emancipation could grow further. We see God's gracious trajectory when we look at the the harsh servitude, slavery in Egypt and how this had been going on for 400 years. There was no release for them. There was no rest on the seventh day for Israel when they're in slavery in Egypt. There was no freedom on the seventh year for Israel when they were in Egypt. There was no return of the land to those that were impoverished in their community after 49 years when they were in Egypt. And so when God gives these laws, there is this parallel from the first verse in chapter 21 here to the beginning of the Ten Commandments. God starts the Ten Commandments back in Exodus 20, verse 2, saying, I think we have this on the screen too, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God, when he starts giving them kind of his big general laws, the Ten Commandments, he prefaces it with like, I brought you out of slavery, guys. And when he starts getting into some of the specific laws for them in chapter 21, he begins with saying, he shall serve six years, and the seventh year he shall go out free for nothing. God's already beginning to plant these seeds that I'm the God who freed you from that kind of slavery. I want you to be the kind of people that look for freedom, that look to free the slaves that are in your community. Because remember, Israel didn't start slavery <laughs> when they were freed from Egypt. Israel was um, captured and put in slavery by Egypt, and yet they did that to one another. Israel was owning slaves themselves while under slavery. The same thing done to them, they did to others. And as God started this process of I freed you, you free others, this continued. In Leviticus 25, you guys can look at it later, there's more laws about how to treat slaves in that culture, and yet Moses as he kind of refines some of these laws and kind of fills in the gaps, he starts mentioning them in brother language, in sister language, which in that, in that culture, in that day, slaves didn't even have the right to be avenged for a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye thing. If you look at other ancient codes, like the, I think it's called the Hararabai Code, back in uh, 1700 B.C., that was the first uh, code that we know, this first moral code that we know that had those eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth type justice laws. And in that code and any other code that you'd find in the ancient Near East, slaves were always exempt. Slaves were only property. There was no even hint of personhood in the slavery of the cultures around Israel. And so for Israel, 
God was bringing them in this progressive way to be a people who saw justice as also pertaining to those that were slaves in that day. And then, in Leviticus, they're, start to be, they're starting to be seen as brothers, not property, as sisters. Not owned, but people. Israel was very backwards from where God has brought his church, from where God has brought his people. I'm not going to deny that was the case. I'm not going to try to explain and say this is exactly the way God wants us to live now. The principles are exactly the way that God wants us to live. The same thing he was wanting to do for them, he wants to do for us. But to go back there would be a denial of the way the Holy Spirit's worked over hundreds of years in his people. In that culture, the women weren't honored the way God would desire them to be honored. People were honored when they were treated like property, when they were beaten, when people lacked the kind of compassion and treatment that they should have, that children being seen as a lineage to be leveraged in that culture, but not little souls to be loved and cherished. I believe that sat in the heart of God. But God met them where they were and brought them at the pace that he did, not because he's mean and he's intentionally slow, but because of their hardness of heart. We see Jesus teach a little bit about this when the Pharisees are encountering him saying, what do you do about this marriage situation where there's a divorce and someone's had multiple wives and who, who are they actually married to in heaven? And Jesus talks about the reason why he had Moses permit a certificate, or that Moses allowed Israel to give certificates of divorce to their spouses. And it wasn't because God was pro-divorce. He said it was because of their hardness of heart. Because in that culture, if a man who owned all the property, who had all the rights in the culture, and all the ability to, to live on their own, were to divorce their wife that person would have that scarlet letter on their head, no ability to live in a way that was respected or to thrive in that society. And so the certificate of a divorce was something that God allowed, not because he wanted divorce, but because he wanted to give a provision, a paper that allowed people to say, no, she's not to be seen this way. This is actually something that is legitimate. It gives her a position in the society she wouldn't have had otherwise. And this is the same kind of thing. God allowing these things to continue isn't because he endorses it, but it's because their hearts were so hard that God had to work at the pace that he did. So rather than pointing the finger, when we mourn and blaming God, we need to blame sinful humanity. These were people that were doing this to each other. We see God's trajectory continue in Psalm 145, verse 8. The psalmist David says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. This was a verse that abolitionists in the U.S. used and quoted in their sermons as slavery was moving towards being abolished. God is good and merciful and just to all. He created not just Israel, not just one ethnic people group. And God's glorious destiny, the place that he was bringing humanity through the place that slavery was then to Jesus, 
we see that Jesus became a slave in order to free us all. Once and for all. We see in Exodus 21, verse 5, it says that the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children. Jesus, if Jesus says that he loves his master, he loves God the Father. If the slave says that, I will not go free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. His master shall bore his ear with an owl. He shall be his slave forever. Isaiah, later, the prophet, in chapter uh, 53, says about Jesus, prophesying that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... We are healed. And then Mark 10, verse 42. Jesus called to him and said to him, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, as the payment to purchase the slave for many. Jesus freed us from sin by living under the curse as an indebted, homeless, poor man Living like a slave. Jesus said that he took the form of a bond servant. It's the same idea here. When he came to earth, lived his life, and died a death, being pierced through, just like the slave was, to become the answer for our freedom. Because the reality is, though none of us live in the same kind of slavery that existed then or existed earlier on in our country's history, not so long ago, really. Though none of us have experienced that in our life, we have experienced a kind of slavery that is deeper at a heart level. Without Jesus, we all are a slave to sin. The Bible is really clear about it, and I don't even need to use the Bible for that. We know that. If you're not a believer in here, what's the thing that kind of gets your conscience the most that you know you shouldn't be doing? Here's an experiment. For the next month, just don't. Just stop that sin. Just quit it. And then come back and tell us how that went. You can't. We are slaves to sin. It's the picture that a slavery to Egypt was trying to, to show. There's a picture there that we are all slaves to sin until Christ frees us by being the person that actually could go a month without sinning because he went his whole life without sinning and he lived perfectly so that on the cross, dying the death of a sinner, dying the death of a slave, dying the death of a disobedient child, we could actually become legitimate children of God, though we rebel. We could become free people, though we've been enslaved to our sin. We could become children of God, not slaves any longer. Like I expected, we're not going to be able to hit point three, so you can uh, move past the injustice 
section. We'll get to that next week. I just want to ask, kind of cover two things on how do we live this out. It's a lot of, a lot of talk. Our heads might be spinning. Um, hopefully I've been somewhat clear that we can kind of follow along and see the trajectory of God's grace and how it points to Jesus, meeting them in kind of the gross realities of that culture and bringing them to Jesus. But how can we live this out? First, I think God invites us to be like him. God didn't just leave them in slavery for another 400 years or just indefinitely, but God came with a mighty hand and delivered Israel from that slavery and brought them to himself, adopted them as his children. And God was a God who saw the unseen. So if you want to move to the the slide that that has that, we can see the unseen. Um, I've learned to be the kind of person that is better at seeing those that are marginalized and vulnerable and unseen, mainly from being around people that do that well. (laughs) People that have hearts of compassion that would enter into the kind of chaos that was there in Israel. They would enter into the kind of chaos that is in many communities that are feeling oppressed or lacking justice or lacking equity and equality. But to see the unseen isn't something you just decide to do. You can't just see the blind spots that you have. They have to be pointed out to you. So for me, that's primarily been my wife. Like when she reads this, (laughs) I feel like I'm going to cry thinking about this because I'm so appreciative, but like when she reads this section and we're talking through you know, the rules that you shall set for them buying a Hebrew slave, her, her eyes tear up because she thinks like, yes, I know Jesus was coming, but like the suffering that was still there for so many years and the suffering that still goes on in our world and so many people, the people that do feel unseen. You don't have to be in a marginalized community to be this person. You can be someone that looks connected and yet feels completely unseen, unloved, unvalued, unnoticed on the inside. You can, you can look totally fine and yet feel so removed and separated, and yet God sees you. God saw them and entered in. We can be the kind of people that God works through to see the unseen, those that feel they are casualties of slavery, of patriarchy, of nationalism, of child abuse. Those kind of things didn't just end They've morphed. We still live with ramifications of physical slavery in our country. We still live with ramifications of a patriarchal society that was oppressive to women in our country. We still live with ramifications of a nationalistic identity. Like These are all things that still persist in different ways, and people do feel unseen in some of those spaces. And those that the other cultures wouldn't see... God saw. No one else was stepping in, but God did. And I think God calls us, like him, to step in, to see the unseen, and to do something, to speak, to love, to fight for just laws in our workplaces, to fight for just laws in our state, in our country, in our communities, to try to bring people to a place of equity that looks like Jesus to live like Jesus after he shows us those that are unseen. And then secondly, bringing it even closer to home individually, we can view people through the lens of God's grace. God meets us where we are and brings us where he is all through grace. 
we don't deserve to be met in our, our gunk, in our grossness, in our gruesomeness. That's not something innately deserving in us. We've rebelled. We've been the kind of people that would strike our Father. Yet, God in his grace meets us, and God doesn't have to bring us to where he is. He doesn't have to grow us. He doesn't have to grow compassion. He doesn't have to grow his, his, his character and, in, and his attributes in us, but he does through his grace. Romans 2 talks about it. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so, lastly, something to, to kind of apply this, are we the kind of people, am I the kind of person, are you the kind of person that lives in a gracious way with others? As we look at our hearts, when we look at people like Israel there, or people that we might despise now, people that we think live backwards or have bad ideas or bad practices, What's the first thing that jumps to your head? When you see someone that disappoints you or sins against you, do you first rush to judgment or do you rush to grace? This isn't the only definition for grace, but I think a helpful definition for grace is grace is us seeing a person not for where they are, but for where God's taking them. And looking at them in a lens of grace. Judgment's voice looks at them with frustration. It says, I would, I would never, I would never do that, which is putting ourselves above someone else. Or how could they do that? With frustration, as though their point in life is to meet our needs. <laughs> Judgment's voice in our heads will look at people with fatalism, just this fatalistic attitude. I'm not surprised. They did it again. <laughs> That's what they do. They'll never change. Why do we even put up with them? Judgment's voice shames. You always do that. You're never going to stop. You'll never change. Grace's voice, I believe, through the Spirit, working his heart into our hearts, says instead of frustration, we can have empathy knowing that we've frustrated God. Instead of fatalism, we can have faith, believing that God actually is going to change the people that we love, the person you're married to, the child that you have, the friend that you know. We can see Jesus in others and believe the Spirit's power to redeem them is greater than their power to flee. We can lean in and not... Withdraw. I think God models that. He leans in close. Though their sin is directly against him, he leans in. He pursues. His grace is not cheap, though. He doesn't just put it to the side and ignore it. He paid for it through Jesus on the cross. Though humanity looked at God in the eye and continued to thrash against him and strike him, God holds us closer and treats us like children. So when you think of how you view people, I want you to view people like God does, like Jesus did, full of grace and truth, knowing that the truth is we don't deserve this grace. But because of Jesus and his work on the cross, we can be people that give grace where it's not deserved. Grace draws near and doesn't draw away. 
Join me in prayer and we'll close up. Father, it's so easy for us to deal with, read through hard sections, to, to see hard realities in our own world or in Israel and spend our effort trying to explain, trying to rationalize, try to argue with you. But God, I believe that you want us to see ourselves in Israel. the practices that continued after they were saved, they didn't just stop instantly. God, we know that. We still sin against you, Lord. We still rebel. Though you've saved us, though you've pursued us, God, we still flail against you. And yet your grace abounds still the more because we're your children. So God, thank you for meeting us where we are. God, thank you for drawing near to a people like Israel and to people like us. Thank you for risking your reputation being smeared, putting your name in those texts, putting your spirit in people like us. Thank you, Jesus, for getting your hands dirty for pursuing a people that were far from pursuing you. And God, we rejoice, though it's sobering to know how far we we were from you when you saved us. It brings us so much joy to know how far you've brought us and that you have promised to bring us into conformity with Jesus. You have promised to make us like Jesus. As we read through the pages of him, we see the way he lived. We see the way he loved. We see his compassion and his empathy and his grace. Lord, make us that way. Make us a people that see the unseen. Make us a people that give grace liberally. Make us a people that see one another, not for what we're stuck in, but for where you're taking us. Let us worship you today. Amen.